Philip Gorski is a comparative historical sociologist from Yale University. His areas of research interest and focus include state formation, nationalism, revolutionism, economic development, and secularization. On this episode, we discuss his publication, American Baby Loan, A Christianity Before and After Trump. Hi, Philip, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and I'm very excited to know more about you and about the work you've been doing. Um, so to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and more specifically about your interest in religion and like politics as areas of research which you've been looking at? Uh, sure. So um, I'm a professor of sociology and religious studies at Yale University, and I'm currently also chair of the sociology department here. I've been here um, for uh, over 15 years. Um, I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and was an undergraduate um, at Harvard. Um, I've um, gradually developed an interest in the intersection of religion and politics, um, and um, initially focused on early modern Europe and the Protestant Reformation, and more recently, it turned my attention to the complex interplay of religion and politics in, in the United States, which um, as, uh, as in India is uh, interesting and uh, important. Definitely, right. I think to sort of go a little bit more deeper into that, I know that you've also authored this one book called American Baby Loan, where you look at this interplay, right, as you mentioned. Can you like, tell us a little bit about the title, right, and how you really came about to like writing the book and, and like setting a context? Uh, in that sense? Uh, sure, sure. So um, the, the sort of catalyst for the book was the election of Donald Trump and the role that white evangelicals played in putting him into the White House. So roughly 81% of white evangelicals voted for him in 19 or rather in uh, 2016, and uh, something like 83% voted for him again in, in 2020, which is a little bit remarkable since white evangelicals are really the core group within the Christian right in the United States. And the Christian right for many decades has portrayed itself as the party of moral character and family values and public civility. So why exactly would it be that they would support somebody who seems to be the very opposite of all of those things, who um, is uh, who has a poisonous tongue, who um, has had multiple children with multiple wives and many affairs, during and in between his marriages and has been bankrupt uh, multiple times. Certainly not uh, the sort of person whom we were led to believe that white evangelicals would, would want, to, want to elect. But the book isn't really uh, about Trump per se. It's more an attempt to understand 
the complicated relationship between Christianity and democracy and the history of the West, quote unquote, by, by which I mean Western Europe and its, its settler, settler colonies in North America and, uh, and Oceania uh, primarily. And um, the central argument of the book is that we shouldn't be shocked that um, some American Christians have become increasingly attracted to an authoritarian politics because there have always been authoritarian strains within uh, Western Christianity. And in some ways, the United States is, has been a little bit exceptional in the degree to which uh, Christianity and democracy have been seen to go together here for, for most, most of its history. So a lot of the book is really just trying to um, explore this complicated relationship between Christianity and democracy in Western history, and um, then also trying to understand uh, how the, that relationship has changed in American history, leading American Christianity in an increasingly authoritarian direction. Yeah, and you know, I think um, one question, right, that's really at the heart of it, I think, you know, even though you mentioned that it's not really as much about Trump at all, I think is this question of what really American culture is, you know, quote unquote, because I think a very popular conception that a lot of people have is that, you know, like this, um, like melting pot of cultures, right, because, you know, you've had so many waves of immigrants and all of that. But then, uh, you know, I think on the other hand, right, like Trump's entire premise was to make America great again, right? I think which sort of implies that before all of these immigrants, right, like like at least like the implication that comes out is that there was this one great America, which was immigrant-free, Scott-free. And I think, and yeah, so I think I just like, you know, a bit of context as to what really American culture is, right? And if democracy is at the heart of it, and if it is for and by the people, right, then who really are the people who, you know, like we're like talking about? Right, that really is the crucial question. Um, if democracy is government for and by the people, then just exactly who are the people? And there is a lot of disagreement about that in the United States now. But if you know American history, you also know that there's always been a lot of disagreement about that. Obviously, uh, the Native peoples were not considered part of the United States. Enslaved African Americans were not considered part of the United States. And there uh, have always been nativist anti-immigrant groups who have questioned whether new arrivals really were or could, could be true Americans. And so I think what one of the arguments that I make in American Babylon and that I elaborate in a new book called The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy is that there's always been another understanding of the American project, which I and others call white Christian nationalism. There, one way of thinking about this is a, it's a story that uh, many Americans tell themselves and have retold uh, across history that runs something like this. America was founded by white Christians 
American democracy is based on Protestant Christianity. America has uh, been special out, has singled out for special blessings and a special mission in the world uh, because of its piousness and righteousness and to the degree that it becomes less white and less Christian and less patriotic, that power and prosperity and that mission to the world are, are all endangered. And so we need pure nation, we need strong borders. And that I think is what Donald Trump was appealing to. That for, for many conservative white Christians, when he said, let's make America great again, what they heard is, let's make it white and Christian again. Yeah, and I think that really ties in very closely with one of the chapters of the book as well, right, which is that, is democracy a Christian thing? So, you know, I think the way that like a lot of us have seen it, right, is that, you know, you have the entire structure of politics, right, like whether it's a monarchy or a democracy and all of that. I think these structures are what they are, right? Like they are structures, like they are how governance operates. And then when you have, you know, like a religion, right? I think there is, um, it's much more value driven. It's much more about, you know, like there's a lot of like history and heritage back then. So I think I just like to know what really you addressed in like in this book and, you know, and like what um, it talks about in like this like chapter specifically about how democracy or how it is not a Christian thing. Yeah, so the way I put it in the book is I say that the relationship between Christianity and democracy has always been a very ambivalent one. So it, if, if, you, if you want to argue that there's something democratic about Christianity and something Christian about democracy, you can certainly make that argument. You can say, well, uh, you know, Christianity is very egalitarian, right? It says everybody was made in, in the image of God. And, um, you know, you can say, well, it, it was always uh, somehow about individual rights because it says, um, you know, that we're all supposed to be, we're all supposed to be free in some, in some sense or, 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 that, or that we are free. And, and if you want to, you can look at the history of Christianity and you can find within the history of the churches attempts to make the, the church more democratic, um, you know, and to have rule of law and, and constitutions. And you can find all these, these sort of things that seem democratic in some way or anticipate democracy. But of course, you can make the argument that Christianity has always been anti-democratic or even authoritarian. You, know, you can point to the Christian Bible and say, look, there's all this language about, you know, the kingdom of God and, um, you know, Jesus is, Jesus is king and he'll be king in the future. And, um, you know, there's, uh, if you look at the history of the, of the, of the, the, the churches, you'll find lots of hierarchy, right? Uh, you know, popes and bishops and so on and so forth. And you know, you also find this idea that no, you know, people are not all created equal. Maybe they're equal before God after they die, but they're certainly not equal uh, on earth and amongst other people. Uh, maybe God created separate races which were not meant to be equal. Or maybe 
Uh, he created some people who are supposed to do all of the hard work and some people who are supposed to supposed to run things. Those are all arguments that have always been present within, within Christianity as well. So the relationship between Christianity and democracy has always been an ambivalent one. And so again, we should not be surprised to see authoritarian forms of Christianity emerging or re-emerging today. That's right. And I think, uh, like, do you feel like looking at the historical context, what's coming up is something new? Or is it just that it has, you know, been like a replication of the past, but just, you know, like it's just taken like a new form or a new model somehow, given, you know, like the technology and all that that we have today? So, so, it, so it, is, it is new and it isn't new. So again, I think if, if you look at, for most of American history, I think you can say that Christianity and democracy did mostly go together. This has partly to do with the influence of a certain kind of Protestant Christianity in the United States. So the idea that, for example, each congregation should govern itself and that as each you know, church community should govern itself and that the churches shouldn't just be run by the priests or the pastors, but regular people in the community should also have an influence on, on how, how, the churches, how the churches run. And a very strong belief that religion should be a, a matter of, of individual choice. You should choose whether or not to be a Christian and which kind of Christian to be uh, because everybody should have freedom of conscience and freedom of conscience um, is the basis of other freedoms like freedom of speech or uh, freedom of association. And uh, in some ways it's even the basis of individual rights because you know, we regard the individual conscience as something sacred and special that, uh, that has to be safeguarded and preserved so that people can make choices and are not coerced into making particular, particular choices. So I, I think, you know, broadly speaking, that has, that has for most of American history been kind of the mainstream view. Um, and um, there have always, however, been dissenters uh, from that view, people uh, who, for example, believe that, um, you know, America wasn't founded as a Christian nation, but it should be made into a Christian nation. And if that involves imposing the Christian faith on everybody in the United States or um, kicking out people who refuse to go along, then that's simply the, the price that has to be paid for obeying God's will, obeying God's law, uh, fulfilling America's purpose. Um, what's, what's new is that those voices that used to be very fringe are increasingly mainstream. So um, you hear this, for example, um, amongst many American Catholics, these are so-called Catholic integralists uh, who basically think, look, you know, we, we know what religious truth is, we know what the good life is, and, and it's for everybody's good that we impose that truth and that good on them. 
um, you know, otherwise, um, you know, we're doing them a disservice. You know, they're going to wind up in hell or they're going to wind up living, living terrible lives, misspending, misspending their lives because, you know, we know the truth and we know the way. Um, it's only it's the right thing to do to impose that on, on other people. Um, you know, there are others, Protestant groups who think, um, you know, we know what God's law is and uh, our mission is to build God's kingdom and building God's kingdom means imposing God's law on everybody. And if that requires using the force of the government, then we're slowly going to take over the institutions of government and we're going to use them. And it may take a while, but that's our mission. And this is a, this is a movement known as theonomous. So theo, God, nomos, nomos law, so God's law. Some people talk about them as, as dominion theologians. This idea is, you know, it's Christian's duty to take dominion or exercise power over non-Christian. Or a third name for this movement is reconstruction. And this is the idea that we need to reconstruct society um, to in, in accord with, with God's law. And um, the, those ideas have become increasingly influential as well. And there's there's kind of also, and this is maybe the new thing, new part of it, is there's also um, what you might call more of a Christian identity movement, which just says, look. You know, Christianity or Christian culture is what made America great. And we need to defend American civilization or we need to defend the Judeo-Christian tradition or something along those lines. And even though some of these people um, are not Christian at all or not orthodoxly Christian in any sense, they nonetheless have this sense that, you know, I belong to this you know, Christian culture, and I am going to defend that, that, that Christian culture. Of course, that culture happens to be white um, in the way that is typically understood. So those are some of the, those are some of the new anti-democratic and authoritarian currents that you find today within, within American Christianity, and all of them are solidly behind uh, Trump and, and his version of the Republican Party. Yeah, and I think a couple of times, right, you also did mention, um, you know, I think like when we talk about Christianity, right, I think especially in this context, it is about following God's law. Uh, and on the other hand, right, I think like Christianity itself is, you know, quite a vast sort of area of faith and knowledge, right, because God, like the Protestants, like Christians, you've got, you know, like the conservatives in that sense, right, and I'm sure that, you know, there are their own differences and all that. So I just think it is like a, a bit more clarity on, you know, what exactly, you know, a lot of like, like the culture and like the values are of like this specific type of Christianity and what a utopian sort of like world would look like in in this um, perspective. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're you're pointing to another um, important element in in uh, this new kind of Christian authoritarianism, and that is um, an apocalypticism. So that the so there is a a certain reading of um, the Christian scriptures that's very influential amongst many conservative Protestants today and basically says, look, um, you know, these, these prophecies that you find in the Bible about Christ returning to earth and there's going to be this 
kind of showdown between the supernatural forces of good and evil and God and Satan. Um, none of that's literary or metaphorical. That's a literal and exact description of events that uh, are going to take place in the future. And those events are going to not going to take place in the distant future. They're going to take place in the near future. They may take place in 10 years or in any event in my lifetime. Many, many conservative Christians believe that the second coming uh, and this, uh, this sort of apocalyptic showdown um, are right around the corner. And so they look, they, they look around and they, they start to see the political and social conflicts around them through that lens, right? It's like, oh, these are, these are conflicts between good and evil and I'm on the side of good and all of the people I don't like and all of my opponents are, are, on, the, are on the side of evil. And because of that, we can use any kind of means necessary to overcome evil. And um, I guess what's again, maybe a little bit new about this is that for a long time, the forces of evil were supposed to be outside of the borders of the United States. Now it was the Soviet Union or it was radical Islam, but now increasingly that the forces of evil are supposed to be internal to the United States. They're atheists or humanists or liberals or Democrats or you, what have you, you know, all of the people who are not part of our team or our tribe or our group, you know, all of the people, you know, whom we don't like, don't get along with and oppose. Right. And, you know, I think something that's also, um, I think, interesting, but, you know, we don't really talk about, right, is how a lot of these values we have, I think, actually, when you come together and when they manifest in such a large scale, right, you know, as to like the leader you choose, right, I think you really begin to see how a lot of these individual sort of ideas and values and all that have been built up, right, actually come to the forefront, right, and you actually see them manifest either through decisions and, you know, like politics and policy and all of that. So I'm not entirely sure if this lies within the scope of your book, but I just like to know a little bit as to how exactly they manifest in terms of like the wall, right, that like Trump was talking about, like with Mexico. And yeah, and that's one example. But yeah, I just like to know a little bit about the real world consequences of, of it. Um, sure. So can give you a, a couple of couple of examples. So I think um, the the wall and immigration; those are really the two central issues that Trump campaigned on. Is one of the reasons why he became the nominee of the Republican Party, and it's one of the reasons he became president of of the United States. Was really harsh language and radical stances that that he he took and um here i think it's sort of helpful to um imagine the territory of the united states almost like the body of the of the nation right and um you know just as you might want to keep germs and pollution and poison out of your physical body. So there was the notion that you want to keep non-Christians and non-whites and um, 
you know, unpatriotic, quote unquote, people um, out of the national body, you know, more, more that, than that, the, the sort of, uh, you know, foreign bodies that were within the national body needed to be purged or, or expelled. So from this, you get the, the wall, which is kind of a protective, supposed to be a protective skin or protective suit around the national body. And you get the, these, the, these ideas about, you know, expelling, deporting, cracking down on, uh, on immigrants, right? To create a more white, more, more Christian nation again. I mean, you also have to see the Muslim ban uh, early on in the Trump administration in these lights, right? Because, you know, Islam is, you know, one, for white Christian nationalists is, you know, kind of the most threatening poison or toxin or virus, you know, the one that you most have to keep out of, uh, out of the national, national body, the biggest, biggest threat to it. So that I think is, 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 is certainly pretty key to, in, in terms of, in terms of policy. Um, and, you know, uh, I think the, you know, the other very important thing about it is that, um, you know, Trump was also speaking for, you know, white and often Christian men in the United States who um, have been a very privileged, powerful, dominant group through most of America's history and are now confronted with um, people who want um, an inclusive, multiracial, multicultural democracy in which they'll simply be equal with everybody else instead of being above everybody else and um, feel threatened by this. And so part of that's, a, that's you know, Trump's attacks on political correctness, quote unquote, were in large part about this. So, you know, if I can put it really bluntly, it was about just like, they don't wanna to be told not to call, to use racial slurs or homophobic language. They wanna be able to use that language just the way that they did 30 or 40 years ago. And I, I think it's many young people, you know, people, People your age instead of mine in the United States don't understand how common that was. I, when I was, uh, you know, when I was still in school, I mean, homophobic and racist and ethnic slurs were just incredibly common. And, um, you know, white people and especially white men felt completely comfortable using them and faced, rarely faced any serious consequences. And, you know, they don't like that. And I think that's a lot of what the backlash against political correctness is actually about. It's, it's not wanting to be deprived of these verbal weapons, of the ability to, to exercise verbal violence against other people to put them in their place. Very much so, yeah. And um, in fact, I think it's also interesting that you mentioned that, you know, it is these privileged white men who have for so long been in power, right, who actually, you know, end up feeling threatened. And that is why, you know, a lot of like these blue collar workers, especially a lot of these evangelical Christians, you know, have sort of gone ahead and voted for Trump, right? 
but i think you know to feel threatened is one thing and i think to actually have you know a lot of like these immigrants you know and like outsiders you know like quote unquote who come in to actually be a threat i think that's another thing so um so yeah i mean you know like do you feel like it is just a response to a lot of these changes that are actually happening or is it that you know the power scales are actually you know being tipped uh, in that sense like which led to you know like trump um for like being elected It, it's both it's both of course um you know you, you you know you can imagine so let's just imagine uh that Mitt Romney had become president so I mean I don't agree with a lot of his policies um you know I would he would not have been my first choice as president but I don't think Mitt Romney is a racist and I don't think that he would have spoke used the kind of racist and divisive language that Donald Trump um and many of his followers used and um I don't think that the United States would be in as bad a spot as it is now if for example Mike Pence uh the vice president had been president um again you know very conservative white evangelical christian I would have disagreed with a lot of his positions but i cannot imagine him using this kind of vile divisive and racist language um so i i don't think there's any doubt that um you know that that trump kind of deepened and accelerated divisions and trends um that were that were already there so it, absolutely you know i i you know you it sort of think back if how close that 2016 election was um if it had gone the other way i think we would be in a somewhat different place um just in the same way that i think if uh you know george bush had not become president and al gore had become president in the disputed 2000 election i don't think there would have been an iraq war i think the united states would have done something about climate change earlier than it did um you know no iraq war no isis no isis no syrian civil war no syrian civil war no european refugee crisis um no european refugee crisis no radical right wing and parties on the ascendant in in western europe right so so i think we have to keep in mind you know we shouldn't see this all too fatalistically you know um it's important to to act politically the future is is open don't just resign yourself um you know what people do and say matters even you know people who aren't as uh, powerful and prominent as donald trump very much so yeah and uh, soldo had asked earlier already about whether democracy is a christian thing i think you also address the inverse of that right which is that is christianity a, you know like a democratic thing and i mean again it's interesting right because you know i think at the face of it like they and this is just you know like my opinion right like one is like a result of a lot of history a lot of heritage and a lot of you know these stories essentially right that have been you know told over generations that have been documented that we actually see today and the other is you know uh, like a structure right to you know sort of govern you know like these people and you know like nation states and all of that and that has been replicated throughout countries 
uh so yeah i just like to hear you know like your thoughts and like the points that you address in this chapter and um yeah just like to hear mm-hmm. your thoughts there yeah so it's so kind of flipping things around and asking um asking what it's you know is democracy inherently christian um and what influence has christianity had on our understanding of democracy so the first question is democracy somehow inherently christian absolutely not i i think that's um a kind of a whiggish prejudice if i can use that that old older language um you can if you know if you understand democracy as some form of popular sovereignty or collective self-government you can find forms of this in you know different places and times all all around the world um you know whether you're talking about south asia or east asia or latin america or wherever right so there's nothing in that sense you know i think this sort of story that westerners like to tell themselves about oh you know democracy started in greece and then it went to rome and then it went to western europe and then it went to the united states and then you know the gift of democracy was shared with the rest of the world i mean that's that i think it's just a patently false story um i think i think what is true is that um christianity shaped western understandings of and institutions of democracy so um just to give a a, a few examples um no sort of the idea that democracy is based on a social contract as for so and others put it is in partly influenced by the the idea really a jewish idea that the community is based on a covenant that uh that people enter into with each other and 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 with god so the social contract is kind of uh the covenant minus god if i can put it that way right or the idea of representation right that well uh you know in a large country like india or the united states we can't all meet in one place and debate politics um so what do we do we elect people who are going to represent us so that practice of representation and ideas about it are partly ones that originate in uh the sort of medieval monastic organizations and and, and are elaborated by catholic theologians and really begin there and are then adopted actually by uh by secular by secular rulers so that idea of representation um you know parliaments and congresses and so on um you know i think also in some ways this idea of liberal democracy so the idea that you know we have a written constitution and um we have individual rights you know which are sort of in, important to the way in which we mostly understand democracy today right you know when you establish a democratic government one of the first things you do is you you have a written constitution and one of the central elements of the, of a written constitution these days as you spell out the different rights 
that 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 people have. Um, you know, that too is is very much influenced by uh, kind of more you know more Protestant <clears throat> ideas as a sort of emphasis on you know scripture and things being written down and kind of uh, sort of explicit uh, moral moral codes. And then finally, you know, social democracy. I mean, we, you know, we tend to associate that with sort of secular socialist uh, or communist movements. And, um, you know, they certainly played a very important role, but, um, you know, there were also Christian socialists and Christian Democrats um, and um, who played a very important role in the development of social democracy in the sense of you know, different kinds of, you know, safety nets and social insurance and um, economic democracy and so on and so forth. So, you know, those are ways in which Christianity has definitely, um, you know, shaped Western understandings of democracy over a very long period of time. And, you know, because of the influence um, which you know, the West had through imperialism and colonialism and forms of soft power today, um, you know, those are also ideas that are now very widespread about, about what democracy means. But you know, that's it, I think it, it's, it's, it's important for everybody, um, you know, to some degree to kind of re-ask those questions about what democracy is and what it could mean. And I think in, in doing that, um, you know, we shouldn't just look to Western history. I mean, we should look uh, outside of it as well, at other you know forms of collective and communal self-government and 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 self-determination. I mean, there's you know there's you know what democracy really means is sort of empowering people to govern themselves collectively. There are many different ways that 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 can be organized, and I think we're you know very much you know because of the authoritarian uh, the, the growth of authoritarianism and the crisis of democracy today is very important for people who think you know a little bit outside the box to re-ask themselves that question and look more widely you know beyond you know the west and, and trying to develop answers to it for sure yeah i think and um, yeah, you know, I think I've also heard a lot about how, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I think the history we read, like the politics we engage with, everything has, uh, like not everything, but when it has been written by a Western uh, writer, like when you have this Western perspective, I think everything is just so embedded, right? You know, I think over the years, we've also come to follow that structure and really understand, you know, it, like that like perspective, right? And I think that's why. I don't know, like people talk about like westernization a lot, but don't, you know, I think people don't really talk about like easternization in that sense. And you know, like when we talk about, you know, like modernization, I think it is typically, you know, I think apart from like the influx of technology and everything, it is just a lot of, you know, the influence of the West, right? Again, as you mentioned. And I think apart from, you know, looking outside the West to something that often helps us, you know, understand these structures of democracy and Christianity better is also. I think looking at the past and seeing what you know a lot of these other like scholars and um, and like figures have also said, right? And I think you also uh, in the book also address like Tocqueville's idea of of democracy. So I just like to know a little bit about that and the context that it sets. You know, I think in terms of like the stuff that like we've been speaking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I think um, so, so Tocqueville 
one of his one of his most important arguments was that um, democracy is is not just a set of formal institutions. It's also a set of cultural habits, or what he called uh, more poetically, habits of the heart. And like most habits, those habits are ones that you pick up just in going about your, your everyday life. Um, they're ways in which you, for example, try to solve problems as, as they arise. So one of the most important democratic habits of the heart for Tocqueville is what he called the habit of voluntary association. So if people run into some sort of a problem, um, their first thought, their habitual thought is to get together with other people um, and try to solve the problem collectively, you know, other people who are interested in, in working with them, a voluntary uh, association. And um, one of the places that people learned this habit historically in the United States was in their church communities because they were small communities, 50, 80, 100 people at most, where um, you know, many of the church members would serve as church leaders at some point and where the church itself was not just run by a bishop or by the pastor, but by a group, you know, a church board or a group of church elders as they were sometimes called. <clears throat> so church was one of the places where people acquire these democratic habits of the heart, the habit of a voluntary association. And his argument was that those habits of the heart also were carried over into politics from the religious sphere. So when people confronted a political problem, they would you know, form a committee or have an election or um, set up a movement, right? Um, so <clears throat> um, one, of the, one of the problems that, that we face today for sure um, in, in the United States is that um, people have lost those democratic habits of the heart. There are um, increasingly, you know, we live in these large top-down bureaucratic organizations. And this is true of most churches. Um, you know, the, the most influential churches in the United States today are not these small churches, local churches, they're these mega and giga churches that have two, five, 10, 20, 50,000 members. Um, they're organized around a, a charismatic pastor. They're run by professional staff who often have business training um, and where the members are never going to be leaders. They're always only going to be spectators um, who participate passively. And what's true in the church world is true even more in the economic world uh, for the most part. So 
Um, you know, that is one of the reasons for the crisis of democracy. And I think it's also one of the, the, the reasons for the attraction of authoritarianism um, that you want, uh, you know, a strong leader, you know, who can get things done because that's how you think things get done. Or you hate all this bureaucracy. And so you want a strong man authoritarian leader who can just break through the bureaucracy and, and make things make things happen. Um, you know, it's an understandable impulse in some ways, but it's certainly not a democratic impulse. So that's, that I think is what would really worry Tocqueville were he to look at the United States today is the growth of these anti-democratic and authoritarian habits of the heart. Very much so, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, a final sort of question I'd like to wrap up with, right, is that I think it sort of takes us back to uh, not so much about what we've been discussing about, you know, democracy and Christianity, but much more about, um, you know, like the role of the researcher or the writer themselves as, you know, they go about unpacking this, right? So I think, um, so, you know, I think like sociology, right? I think as a field of studies one, which is so different from the natural sciences because, you know, we are studying human beings. So I think it's not uh, always as objective as we would like it to be. Uh, so I just like to know if you have ever felt that your uh, background or experiences or identity has influenced the course of your research, either in terms of your access to resources or, you know, interviews or, you know, data, like anything that sort. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I don't do ethnography or interviews or that sort of thing. You know, I'm really more of a kind of theoretical and historical sociologist. So I don't think that, you know, my background has really been that important in that particular regard, but it, it certainly influenced the kinds of things that I, that I've chosen to work about, work on. So you know, I came from, uh, you know, a family and a town where conservative and evangelical Christianity were, you know, very influential. And so I always sort of under, I've understood that in a way that many secular and progressive academics don't. So I felt in some ways that maybe that was sort of my mission or, you know, the niche that I should, that I should try to try to fill. Um, and, um, you know, my choice to begin focusing on the United States was, I think, also this sense that I might be able to contribute to the public debate around these subjects a little bit, um, you know, through, through my scholarship. Um, but I think those are really the, those are probably the main ways in which, you know, my, you know, my, my identity is. Um, has influenced scholarship, and you know, I would say negatively in the sense that it probably took, it definitely took me longer than it should have to just realize how important race and racism are in in the United States. So, um, you know, when I first started working on the subject of white Christian nationalism, I just talked about Christian nationalism. I didn't really understand the degree to which it was wrapped up with race, and I think it was really not till the Trump administration and the Black Lives Matter protests that, you know, I think my, I really, you know, fully opened my eyes to just how deep a lot of this, this history runs. And so that's kind of been 
my my goal and my latest scholarship is to think harder about the complicated relationship between race and religion and nation and nationhood absolutely yeah and i think it also makes it much more interesting and much more real right because i think when you see it happening all around you you know then you begin to realize that like oh these aren't you know there is a lot of history in there you know as you mentioned like even though we may not be there to see it there are years and decades of you know um of these movements and protests you know that have happened of all of you know these people who were involved and i think what we see today is the some you know addition of that and we are also a part of it you know i think in a much grander scale which i think is uh, quite cool you know i think like when you think about it um so yeah that's about it from my end so thank you philip for taking out the time today it was a pleasure speaking to you Oh, it was my my pleasure too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH Podcast for further updates.